0: O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Those are the first two verses of Psalm 88, which is the psalm appointed for today, Holy Saturday, April the 16th, 2022. The rest of that psalm, I looked at it and thought, was well, there some way I can use those two verses and then some others? It's, it, the rest of that psalm is, is just a cry to the Lord from the pit of hell everything is awful, It's I'm in a terrible place, I need help. And you can imagine those places, I'm sure, uh, where you just feel like you're in over your head, there's nothing that you can do, and that, that God needs to help. And then there's some of this, though, that, that will say things, um, you have caused my companions to shun me, you have put me in the depths of the pit, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Um, and you can imagine David, for instance, writing these psalms like this when he would be in, in horrible places. Because there were plenty of times when David, when he was running from Saul for all those years, when, when Absalom had a revolt against him, when you know, there's various times in the course of David's life when it, it just looks like the end is near. And David had faith, but even people of faith can come into places where it's difficult I mean, like exceedingly difficult and, and just see no hope and no way out at, in a given moment. You know, that's the thing I think we need to always keep in mind is these things describe a momentary space. But at the same time, the, the uh, psalm begins with, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. David's faith always remained in the Lord. That's not to say that David didn't sometimes try and take the bull by the horns and do something himself and and not wait for the Lord, but but David's faith was always in the Lord, and when the Lord told him to do something, he did it. He was quick to move out at the word of the Lord, and it's important that we remain that way. But the reason that psalm particularly is the psalm for today is, is there's no gospel reading for us today, for instance, because it looks like a day of absolutely no hope at all. It, it would, it would fix fit together with what they would be feeling this day. Just try and put yourself in the shoes of any of his disciples, any of the people who had believed in him, any of the people who he had loved and who, who had loved him. And imagine what this day would have been like, the day after the crucifixion, the Sabbath, when you can't do anything. There's no work that can be done, and you're just waiting this day. It wouldn't have been a day of rest, let's say. It would have been a, a day of huge anxiety and probably lots and lots of conversation about what do we do now? What just happened? What, ha- what has happened in, a, in the last three years? And how do, I, how do I fit yesterday with those three years or how do I fit those three years with yesterday? And then what do we do with the rest of our lives and so you can see and imagine what that would be like. The reason there's no gospel is there's no gospel that describes what happens on this day. We don't even pick up the action from, this, from the crucifixion all the way up to the resurrection. So in the first lesson is Job 19, 21 to 27. Hey, probably the most well-known part of Job. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on, you, on me, O you my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Remember the situation here is that Job is in dire straits. I mean, he's lost his entire family. His wife, we presume, is still there, but he's lost his family, and then he's lost everything that he owned, and he was really a very wealthy man. And now he's also lost his health. He's got festering, stinking sores. He's been sitting there scraping himself with a clay potsherd. It's just an awful situation. And so we, we hear him when, when his friends come, and they sit with him for a little bit, and then they have to speak, and so they begin to accuse him. And that's what he's responding to. Have mercy on me, my friends. I mean, why do you do this? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job is, is, believes in his own innocence, and he believes this Redeemer that he speaks of is one who will take his case and plead it before the Lord. He knows that, that his death won't end justice he believes in resurrection. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. He believes in redemption. He believes in justice, and he believes in the resurrection. And, and those things have to go together, because there's not going to be any justice in a cosmic sense in this life. And if you think there is, then... I hate to be the one to disabuse you of that notion, but that's all I know to do. There's not going to be justice because the ruler of this world is not a just ruler and won't be until Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth come down. So it's important that that we maintain the belief in resurrection, but that we maintain the belief in a resurrection into a world that is just. And then all this crying and sighing and pain and sorrow will be done with. And that's what Job believes in. He, he, he pleads his case and says, I don't think I'm ever going to get justice in this world. And he's not going to get justice in this world because it's too complex. It's just too complex. The sin, sin is so pervasive that to try and, and bring justice in any given case is impossible because justice here is injustice here and here and here. And so everything is so connected that it's impossible. And that's the reason the Lord gives Job the answer that he does when Job cries out and said, hey, if you'll come down here and listen to my defense, and God comes down and says, buck up, big boy, put on your big boy pants, let's get after it. And then he he takes him to task and says, were you there when I created the world? And what he's getting at is the reality that, that there's no way to measure... Uh, or to answer Job's question without explaining everything that's ever happened in the history of the world. It's all tied together, and it will all be resolved in the end, but God cares. And the proof we get for that isn't God coming down and saying, buck up and and answer my questions. No, it's 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 his son. It's saying, I understand. I know the plight, and I care, and I have a plan. And it begins right here at the cross, and you can— Go to the bank with that because of the resurrection. So the the second lesson, I could read these pretty much in any order. I'm just going to choose to go down to the Romans passage last. So the next passage is Hebrews four one to sixteen. So he's laid out a case for Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the than the priesthood because he's a different kind of priesthood. And so what he says is, and then he begins to talk about rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. Them refers to the Israelites who who failed to enter the rest of God. Um, But the message they heard didn't benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." That doesn't apply to us. That applies to the generation in the wilderness. We, the rest that we can participate in is the the shalom peace that Jesus offers us. We can rest in the knowledge that our sins have been atoned for and that his resurrection means for all those who believe, they too will have resurrection and will live in that heavenly kingdom. And and the argument can be made that we participate in that kingdom now by the giving of the Holy Spirit, because we, we have that peace, that equanimity. In, in the, in the uh, case of difficulty, we, we have access, at least, to that spirit and that equanimity and that peace in the midst of great trials. And that's the promise of God, and it's also the gift of God. So we can enter the rest by just trusting him because he's given us all the signs that we need to know and have faith, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so his rest was then. Does that mean that God's not working since then? Does that mean he's not doing anything since that time? Obviously, the answer is no. The Bible's shot through with God's works. And Jesus says, I came to do the works of God. He works now through human agency most of the time. He will work through us. But that doesn't mean that he separates himself and doesn't insert himself into the matrix from time to time. And, and we can trust him to do that. And, and the Holy Spirit is the, is the pledge that he can work in any way at any time. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, "...they shall not enter my rest." Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day, a day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his... And we're resting in faith, that the works that I do after faith or from faith are are not work in the same way, because we're working together with God. And so I'm not trying to earn my way into heaven, so it's not properly a work, because I'm not trying to do this in order to gain something. I'm doing it because of what I already possess. Let's therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And, and his argument in, in, all the way through the book of Hebrews is to say that Jesus has done everything that was necessary for you to enter this rest. There's nothing you need to do. The work that you do is faith. and It's standing in that truth and standing in that faith. And, and his argument is it, it's wrong to go back to those other things before christ to go back to the sacrificial system to go back to 613 commandments to go back to all those things the argument is that is disobedience it's disobedient to faith it's disobedient to the command of god to believe in his son so he says let's strive to enter that rest and the way we enter that rest is by understanding that our salvation is strictly by faith in christ and the finished work of christ which he announced from the cross when he said, it is finished. And he says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This, this last sentence there, no creature hidden from his sight, all are naked and exposed. Does that sound like Genesis 3 language to you when, when they are hiding from God? and they're hiding their nakedness from God. And that's exactly the way you're intended to hear that. But what is the Word of God? How is it living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the soul, division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart? It's exactly what Jesus said the work of the Holy Spirit was to do, was to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so the, the Word of God is intended to be a word against us, calling us to righteousness, exposing the sin in our lives, not that we might be judged and condemned, but that we might judge ourselves and amend our conduct in our lives. That's the whole point of the, the Word of God being li- living and active. It, 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 the intention is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, it, to the extent that it does, then the Holy Spirit's working through that. And it's important that we do that so that we can further rest in faith, knowing our own inability to be righteous enough to be saved. Then then we know and we we cling to the cross for that reason, because he, he is and we know he is because he was resurrected. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, he could be arrogant about that, right, and say, okay, you're on your own now, I showed you how to do it. But that's not the way he dealt with us. He went all the way to the cross, not to show us how to, well, I mean, partially to show us how to do it, to show us how to live and to show us how to deal with persecution. He shows us all those things, but he doesn't stand apart arrogantly and say, all right, suckers, now y'all try it. No, he stands apart and he cheers for us, and he pleads for us, intercedes for us at the throne against the accuser. And so if, he, if, if that one Satan is accusing us before the throne, if, whatever, Jesus is there interceding for me, saying, I'll take that. I'll take that on myself. But we have to give it to him, and we have to confess it, and we have to turn away from it. Let us, then, with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in the time of need. And that's, that's exactly what the, the prescription is, to draw near the throne of grace with confidence, not confidence in us, confidence in the blood of Christ that we know is an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And we're not coming to receive a pat on the head. We're coming to get, to get mercy and grace and help in time of need. I mean, it's just that simple. If we want to enter that rest, we enter it by faith. We enter it by believing wholeheartedly in Jesus and all the work that he did and that it was sufficient to cover my sins. And his resurrection means that I, all who believe in him will be resurrected with him. It's, that's the rest, the rest is the, the, the knowledge that you can stand in that says, I'm good to go. And now from there, I can begin to do the work of God. And I can also then begin to live in a different way, with a different attitude and outlook towards the world and the things of the world and everything that I do in the world because of Jesus. In the Romans passage, Paul says, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that's exactly what I've been saying. The, the law tells me that I'm a sinner without hope. There's no sacrificial system anymore. I can't get atonement for my sins because there's no sacrificial system. There's no temple. There's no place that I can go and do this. And, and there's a reason there's no place like that, because there are no sacrifices that are pleasing to God in the way that the sacrifice of his son was pleasing For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do because of sin. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. As I've said before about this whole idea of Jesus being lifted up like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, is, is that what's the problem in the wilderness? The problem is the serpents, the fiery serpents. What is the solution? It's the serpent on a stick cross-shaped stick that Moses held up and by having faith in that then the, the problem was was um, serpents the solution was to gaze on a serpent and to put your faith in God through that serpent sort of like in an icon and and so true with Jesus that he became man what's the problem man in order that Ultimately, we could put our faith in him. We could gaze on that, which is problem is sin, humanity. Answer is sinless humanity. And so then we can, we can see that parallel between the two. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? Because sinful flesh is the problem. And he condemned sin in the flesh by pouring out his judgment on his son on the cross for those who will come in faith And receive that sacrifice, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And remember, in the seventh chapter is where Paul has this conundrum of all the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do are the very things that I do. Here he he is saying that should not describe me as a Christian. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You have the ability now, you've been given the ability by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to overcome that sinful flesh nature. Doesn't say you're going to do it perfectly, but but he does say is, is that you have the ability to transcend that conundrum that I posed in Romans 7, and the world needs you to transcend that. Because they need to see that different is possible. For those who live according to the flesh, he says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So you want the things of the world. That's your primary interest is setting your your mind on the things of the world. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And, And that's true. To the extent that we get balled up in the current situation in the world, in our lives, whatever, then, then we become dragged down and that becomes death as opposed to then transcending that, which becomes life and peace, which actually enables us to deal with current situations in a better way. But for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And which, all that does is go back to uh, John 3. Jesus says you must be born again. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. And that's all he's saying is, is that you can't see the kingdom, you can't enter the kingdom, unless you're born again of water and the Spirit. It's it's just it's, it, there's nothing out of line with what Paul's saying here, with what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But he's already said that you can't confess without the Spirit. So if you confess Jesus is Lord, then you have the Spirit. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So there's, we become not dualists exactly, but I recognize the tension in my body. I, I, I recognize the tension in my flesh. These are the things I want to do. This is the person I want to be, and I can't get there, and I can't get there without his spirit. And so then, then we are raised to new life through the indwelling of the spirit so we become new creations now we're not complete yet we still live in the body of death but we will get a new body but right now paul's just saying one simple thing live from the spirit allow the spirit to control your life tamp down the desires of the flesh recognize them for what they are and see that as sin In order that, you can let the Spirit control your life. And as I've said before, Terry Fulham used to say, we can't get any more of the Spirit when we're saved. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we have all of the Spirit we could ever need, want, or get. The only question, he said, was, how much of you does the Spirit have? And it's constantly a need to yield, to him and, and, and at least in my life it's a constant need to yield to him because god constantly reveals to me john that attitude right there that that's not right these other things th- these are not right you need to fix these things there's always another mountain to climb it doesn't mean we we get um sort of overwhelmed And and believe, you know, there's just no hope. No, it's just a matter of purification. It's sanctification, the working out, the living out of the life of the Spirit in us, and the crushing of the desires of the flesh, because we know those things are death, and they're separation from God. He finally ends up with, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you so it's not just hope it's also your body are given life through that so but it's a, a new life a life of the spirit where you're, where you are controlled by the spirit of God and the spirit goes where he may and it's important for us today this day holy saturday to give our lives over to him once again to say show me the places where in my life where I need to change, where I need to live more by the Spirit in order that I might yield to you and let you live through me.